4: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner
5: Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 3 of our three-hour tour, known as the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, Joining me by phone this hour um, is a guest we had back here a few weeks ago to talk about uh, his new book, The Home Stretch. Uh, He's an award-winning author, Wayne M. Johnston. He joins me by phone. Wayne, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Um, as as I remember, we we had a, a long talk about how this book uh, was really kind of based and not very loosely on your own life and experiences. Um, how how have people been reacting uh, to the story now that it's been out for a little while?
4: It's. Uh, Well, it's hard to tell. Really, I don't get feedback directly very much. The the reviews have been good. Uh, I I don't know. It's hard to answer that. Uh, I haven't had any bad reactions. Are you there?
5: Yeah, I am. Sorry. Um, I got a little distracted by something technical here. But uh, the... I guess the reason that I'm asking is because it's so difficult to get a book out during a a pandemic and do the promoting. You haven't really been able to get out and go to bookstores and do book signings and, and interact with maybe people who had read the book.
4: That's true. I did do one interview like this with a book club that read it, and it seemed like, you know, they seemed to like it. They wanted me there, and... Otherwise, let's see, it came out right during the pandemic, and a lot of books got postponed during that time. There weren't the normal review process. Like, North Fork got reviewed by Kirkus and got, you know, uh, library journals and places that would normally kind of spread the word, whereas this time nothing really happened, and then so we waited. And then when it did come out... Uh, it seemed like everybody else had put their book off
5: too, and so the competition was pretty fierce. But <laughs> with, the, with the group that you t- got a chance to talk to, th- this is kind of interesting, Wayne, because of all the, the writers I've had on the show, I, I don't remember talking with them about their interactions with an actual book club who had read the book. What kinds of things did, what kinds of comments, what kinds of questions did they have?
4: They actually asked me a lot of personal questions about my life uh, and then kind of compared them to what happened in the book. And But they, they really kind of turned it to, okay, what about you? <laughs> and I don't mind talking about that, but it, it was interesting.
5: Were, were you expecting... Um the the role that you played in the book to be um that that much at the center of the story uh yeah i don't think
4: it can be escaped uh i i struggle actually the first draft of it was kind of written like a memoir uh i I wasn't planning to publish it. I, My publisher and I were talking about North Fork, and he said, well, what are you working on now? And I told him, and I showed it to him. He goes, I'll publish it. You figure out what you want to do with it. And so I decided to do it as an autobiographical novel because I didn't want to get married to, stuck with, uh, being like a documentary and trying to be accurate, and trying to have my family and other people who, you know, whose friends read it, go back and say, "Well, is this true about your family?" Uh, I just kind of wanted to open it up to, "Okay, some of this is made up, and some of it is." <laughs> right, right. Uh,
5: so, what's the connection between North Fork and um, the home stretch?
4: North Fork is a it was published as a young adult novel. It's told in the voices of three 17-year-old high school students as journal entries for their English class and Bill Smith is their English teacher. And so actually when I wrote North Fork there was a whole lot of Bill Smith he had a voice and he was like the fourth voice in the book and when I was marketing it, trying to get it published, I was talking to an agent and she goes, this is a young adult book. It has to be published that way. And young adult book, kids don't like adult voices in their book. It's like (laughs) in the story. And she's got to get rid of Mr. Smith. And so I went home really upset because that's a that was a fourth of the book, pretty much. Well,
5: and, and, and it was you. It was like you
4: got kicked out of
5: the book. Yeah,
4: that's <laughs> true. <laughs> and, but then when I thought about it, it was like, okay, that's better. I shouldn't be in the book. And so I think North came out to be a lot better book, having eliminated. Well, I just put the only place Mr. Smith, comes through in North Fork is through the eyes of the kids, their observations of him and their reaction to him as their teacher, and he doesn't have any voice at all. So it ends up, I made a tighter book, and I ended up liking it better and being thankful that that lady told me to do it that way.
5: Well then is the is the newer book the home stretch? I'm still not clear on this even after we talked before. Um, the first one is clearly for young adult readers, but is the second one or is is the second one more geared toward adults?
4: It's geared toward adults uh it's It's not a young adult book and North Fork is marketed as a young adult book because I was told that young adult books sold better and that was an easier audience to to sell to. Uh, When I was writing it, I didn't think of it that way. I actually sort of half of my vision of the audience was parents. Uh, I'd been a teacher for 20 years and I had parent conferences all the time and I interacted with parents who were struggling with their kids and couldn't communicate with them and I had this access to their kids. Their kids. I was their pen pal. They wrote these long stories to me. And so I kind of wanted to, I mean, part of why I wrote the book was, okay, this is, this is what I get back from your kids. This is the kind of voice they went to me, and these are the kind of struggles they have. And uh, so I kind of hoped that more adults would buy it, but that's not the way it played out so far.
5: With homestretch, are you finding uh, that some of the readers of North Fork are, you know, then wanting to to see more of the story, so they're they're reading the homestretch, and conversely, people who come across the homestretch and read it, do you find that they're wanting to go back and read uh, North Fork? Well,
4: when you look it up on Amazon or Barnes and
5: Noble,
4: always. Either book, the other book comes up as people also look for, and then they'll if it, if you Google Home Stretch, uh, North fork will come up. So you know, I take that as that it has stirred some interest. Yeah,
5: yeah, I would think because the the two stories are so closely uh, connected. Are you are you working on another book, Wayne?
4: I am. I. I struggled with it and kind of put it down during the pandemic because I didn't really know what to do with the pandemic. Uh, it's I've got Kristen, the character who is the runaway in North Fork, <laughs> opens up with her in a grocery store line, buying some chicken for a salad and finding herself two people behind a person who stalked her when she was a runaway in Victoria, B.C., and it's 16 years later so he's older and she's older and she hopes he doesn't recognize her and he doesn't seem to Uh, but it stirs up a bunch of stuff and so and then i've got the the boy character from north fork having opioid issues and i've got quite a bit written from his point of view and I, i haven't figured out the plot yet. I want to explore the, these characters as 35 to 40 year old adults trying to make it in a world that in, in a lot of ways is crazy. Uh, and when I, I started on it and then the pandemic hit and I kind of go, okay, do I include this? How long is it going to last? Is it a big thing? And I ended up now have decided, okay, the pandemic is so real and so worldwide that can't ignore it, and so I'm having to have my characters deal with it, and I
5: just kind of doing the what ifs to see <laughs> to see where it takes me. How does um, the character Bill, being raised in a religious cult, factor into the story?
4: The story, of the home stretch, it factors in. Pretty heavily. I mean, he wakes up in life in this compound where everybody's an evangelical Christian, and they think of themselves as insiders. And when I was a kid, they actually, the word outsider was how you referred to people who were not part of it. And, you know, some outsiders came in last night, and, and it... uh it was a pretty insular kind a strange experience uh, Is that okay. something
5: is is that something that 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 you lived through
4: Yes I how, lived
5: How do you define cult?
4: I don't think I would define the place I lived as a cult. I'd describe it more as a domestic mission. Uh, could have easily tilted the scale and become one. Uh, people who follow a leader and feel like they are separate from the world and their beliefs kind of overshadow all the rest of everything they do in life. Uh, it's just a, it's a separateness and a, a zealousness, I guess.
5: How long before we see book three?
4: That's a good question.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to sound like your publisher, but.
4: Uh, I don't know. I've picked it back up again. I'm working on it now. It's sort of becoming part of my daily routine. And I could get stuck. Uh, The way I work is I tend to throw paint at the wall. Uh, Both North Fork and the home stretch, I've got probably a third or well, North Fork especially, because all of Mr. Smith's stuff got struck. And home stretch doesn't include very much of the struck stuff. Uh, and home stretch, there's quite a bit. i was flipping through my notes and and computer files as I try to get rolling again on the third book. And there's a lot of the home stretch that, didn't make it into the book. It got edited down. And I, I'm a firm believer in Wayne, economy.
5: I've got to take a uh, a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Sure. All right. Hello we'll be going. right back. This
6: is Elvira, of the Dark, with Tom Sumner.
5: support the tom sumner program and civilized talk radio visit our website at tomsumnerprogram.com and become a member you can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the tom sumner program patreon page thanks for listening and thanks for your
0: support i know this is a really hard time for everyone we're facing a killer virus economic pain and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home believe me I have two teenagers to deal with, but the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe.
3: Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew.
2: Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
6: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with award-winning author Wayne M. Johnston about his books, uh, the most recent one, The Home Stretch, and the one before that uh, north fork um based on his own life experiences actually anyway wayne welcome back thanks for sticking around and sorry to make you sit through all that no problem um wayne as as we kind of wrap up our discussion today and and i look forward to uh you know you're you're getting the next book out I'm, i'm curious to see where you go with this story um, but I do want to make sure, as I always do with guests, to let people know where they can find out more about you and these uh, um, and your books. Do you, do you have a website? I bought the domain,
4: but I haven't developed it yet. Uh, I, the best way to get a hold of is just Google Wayne M. Johnston and then the title of either book, whichever one you're interested in. And uh, lots of stuff will come up that the reviews come up and stores you can buy it at. Uh, You can buy it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. You can go to your local bookstore and have them order it. Uh, I've had people do that. Uh, Well, Wayne,
5: I've got to to move on here, but thanks uh, thanks for joining us again, and I look forward to the next time. Thank you. It's a
4: pleasure to be here.
5: Take care, Wayne. that was uh, Wayne Johnston, award-winning author of a new book called The Home Stretch, which was kind of a follow-up to his young adult novel, North Fork. More of the Tom Sumner program. Straight ahead. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My guest this hour is an octogenarian who still makes social justice her number one cause. It has been her passion since her humble beginnings in Louisiana, and she talks about that and many other things in her life, in a new book called Whispers of Hope, the Story of My Life by Dr. Bertie Simmons, who joins me now by phone. Bertie, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show.
5: Tell me about your humble beginnings in Louisiana and how that influenced you to to make a life of, of working towards social justice?
1: Well, I grew up in North Louisiana, uh, during the depression. And also we were extraordinarily poor and, um, it was during the Jim Crow era. And, um, two things that happened to me that made me fight even today at 86, uh, for social social justice, it were, number one, I thought I was brilliant until I went to first grade. And when <laughs> I went to first grade, my mother had convinced me I could do anything. And then I got to first grade and I found out I couldn't read a word. And in those days, we had what was called round-robin reading. And what that meant was the first person in the uh, row would read a paragraph, then the second person would read the second. Well, it's coming to me, and I know I can't read. And so my heart is pounding, and my hands are sweating, and I put my head down on my desk, and it came time for me to read, and the teacher would call my name. And I didn't know any of the words on the page. So finally she would say, Edna Jean, go teach Mary how to read. And so she came back, and Edna Jean had ringlets, and she—I'll never forget—she had little patent leather shoes, uh, much bigger than mine, and she had little socks with lace around the top of them, and—and and she also had a skirt that just bounced when she walked. So she would walk back to me with her ringlets bouncing and her skirt bouncing, and her little shoes going clickety clack, and she would tell me to read. And I couldn't read. And she said, look at the book page and read. And I couldn't read. And so finally she would read it, and then she would go clicky-clack back to her seat. And I would sit there just humiliated. So one day I went home and I said to my mother, I want to drop out of school. It was in first grade. (laughs) And she asked me why. And I said, because I hate Edna Jean Kennedy. And so my mother took my hands and held them in. Then she reached over and got a piece of uh, white paper. And with a pencil right in the middle of the page, she drew a dot. It was rather a large black dot. <clears throat> so she said, tell me what you see here. And I thought, I'm going to pass this test. And I said, a black dot. And she said, this is the problem you're having with Edna Jean Kennedy because Edna Jean is really trying to help you. But all you look at is how she makes you feel. And she said, you totally ignored all the white on that page, and you zeroed in on that black dot. And she said, that's what you're doing to Edna Jean. So she gave me an assignment to go back to school the next day and find something good about Edna Jean Kennedy. And boy, I didn't want to do that. But I did, and I found out she was very intelligent. And it happened that I loved intelligent people, even though I couldn't read. And so when I went back and told my mother about that, she said, what I want you to do is to spend your life looking beyond that dot and finding something good in people. And then when I was 15 years old, I had a friend. And I lived outside a small town. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, I've said 15, I'm 10 years old and i had a um a uh, friend and so she was black and i was white and i didn't realize that in those days in north louisiana uh there's no way that white should be friends with blacks and i didn't even think of her as being black and so we spent one wonderful summer together and um we decided that was during the war. It was not the Civil War. It was World War II. Sure. And so we decided to, to gather scrap iron to help the war effort. And we got uh, so much scrap iron mm-hmm. that it was almost as, as big as my little home. And uh, we got, when we sold it uh, to the old junk man, we each got four quarters. And boy, we thought we were rich. And I remember licking my thumb and rubbing those quarters to make them shine. And so we decided we were going to go into town and get some ice cream. So we had to walk from the country into a small town to get ice cream. And uh, when we got to the front door, I was going in and I had Dorothy by the hand And she said, I can't go in there. And I said, you can't come in here. Why? And she said, I would be arrested. And I couldn't understand why she thought you'd be arrested because we didn't intend to steal the ice cream. We were going to pay for it. And I said, you will be arrested. Why would you be arrested? And she said, because I am colored. And I said, you are colored. And so I said, where do you get your ice cream? She said, I have to go to the back to get my ice cream. So I said, Well, then I'm going with my colored friend to the back and I want to get ice cream with you. That was a humongous mistake I made. I had no idea what the result would be. So we uh, skipped down to, uh, between the feed store uh, and uh, the grocery store and went to the back. And Dorothy rapped on the door. Nothing happened. She rapped again. Nothing happened. She rapped again, and nothing happened. Now, I knew those suckers, and they hurt her. So I got up there with my fist, and I just started pounding on the door. And about that time, that door flew open, and I will never forget the owner's face when I saw him. His, he was fat, and he had a white apron around him, but her, his eyes were huge when he was staring at Dorothy, And his face was red, and he was yelling at her. And then he saw me. And when he saw me, he really went crazy. And he told me to get back up front where I belonged. And I said, no, we have money. We want to buy ice cream. And ice cream was only a nickel at that time, a cone. And so I said, we earned our money. And he said, you get back up front where you belong. And I said, We just wanted to buy some vanilla ice cream. And he was furious with me. And he finally said, young lady, your your parents are going to hear about this and you're going to pay for it. Well, I'd already told him I was going to pay for it. I didn't know what he meant at that time. But he finally sold us ice cream and we started walking away and I still couldn't understand what was going on. And then Dorothy told me, that in some towns where she had lived that there were water fountains that had white over one and colored over another, and restrooms would have white and colored. So she said, I have to drink, had to drink from the white water fountain. And I said, did you have Kool-Aid in your water fountain? Because I couldn't understand if it, if, I mean, she had colored. I said, why do you have to drink from the colored uh, water fountain?'" And it must have Kool-Aid in it. And she said, no, it's just water, like in the white fountain. So I said, one day I'm going to see a fountain like that. I'm going to drink it, because I love Kool-Aid. And she (laughs) said, no, it's just that I'm colored. And so I had to drink from that fountain. And then she told me about the boys that would go down in the quarters. And they would put two befores out the back window of their cars. And black boys would be walking down the road. And they would just swap them in the back of the head and knock them out. And nothing was ever done about it. And so I kept thinking, this is all wrong. Why why is this happening? It was just, I was perplexed. I couldn't understand this. And so uh, she said, I said, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you fight against this? Because this is wrong. And she said, I'm only 10 years old so what can i do and she said you can't do anything about it either so stop getting so upset about it cuz you will never change it and i said i will change it because this is wrong and it was a short time after that that she came running over to my house late in the that was dusk and she said we're moving and i said you can't move we're, we we promised to be friends forever and you can't move and she said, well, Mama said, we're moving right now. And I looked out there, and I saw a pickup truck, and everything was loaded in it. And so I grabbed her, and we hugged each other, and both our hearts were just pounding. And she, I said, friends forever, and she said, we will be friends forever. And she turned around, and as she was running away, she looked back at me, and I saw fear in her eyes. And I could not understand why she was having to run away here at dusk, and she had already told me once that they moved often, and they usually moved at night, so, so anyway, it was not long after that that night that I was lying in my bed, and I saw this the light flashing on my window, and I got up and I went ran to the window, and I saw men in white. I thought it was robes, with white pointed hats, and they were they were burning Dorothy's house down, and they were laughing. So I ran out on the porch and I screamed, "Stop laughing! This is not funny!" And they just their pickups were revving, and they just drove away and left her house burning. So that night, I I couldn't I just couldn't understand everything, but I began to think. That when the owner of that store told me that I was going to pay for this, perhaps I had caused all this to happen. And so that night I just spent thinking about all the bad things that Dorothy had told me that were happening. And I couldn't understand why, just because I had noticed when her ice cream was melting and running down her arm that it looked different from my arm when it was melting. But I didn't think that should make any difference. So that night uh I decided I that I was gonna spend the rest of my life fighting that at that that time I didn't know it was social justice. I just knew I was didn't want this to happen to anybody else. And I was gonna do whatever I could to be sure that didn't happen.
5: And you ended up getting a uh... $10 million grant uh, for reimagining schools from um, Steve Jobs' widow. Um, I did. How, how do you go about getting a $10 million grant? I'm asking for a friend.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what happened was I had been retired uh, for five years, and I got a call, and the superintendent asked me if I would come out of retirement and go over to a, a school uh, on the other side of town, and it was a minority school, and I'm white, and so I I said, and, and that school was known for violence and gangs, and it was called a throwaway school, and it was a direct pipeline from high school to prison, and and it was Uh, By The the state had labeled it a dropout factory. And I knew that because I'd read about it in the paper and I knew all about it. So I said no. So he called me again, and I said no. The third time that I got a call, I had just lost a 16-year-old granddaughter in a snow skiing accident. Hmm. And she said, uh, she would always say, Donna, tell me the Dorothy story. And I I would always tell her that, Dorothy. And she would always say, I'm going to grow up to make the world a better place for all people. So the third time they called me, I said, I I decided I would try to go to that school to make a difference, even though I knew nothing about gangs or what I was going to do. But I wanted to leave a legacy for my granddaughter. And I went there, and I I did a, a... I was just surprised when I got there because I didn't think they would want me there because I was white. But I found out that Hispanics and blacks love their grandmothers, and so they sort of viewed me as a grandmother. But we couldn't have assemblies or we couldn't have after school activities because of gang fight. But now, this may be a story that's too long to tell, but. Uh, One day I came in from a meeting and there was a riot on campus and ambulances were there taking away injured people. And um, so when I went into my office, I found out that they were going to send, uh, the assistant principals had planned to send 32 gang members to an alternative school just to get them off campus. And so I said, I'm not going to do that. Because we had done that for years. I, I don't know if you know this, but in education, be the same thing over and over, whether it's working or not. And I said, I'm not going to send them. <laughs> so what they told me was, well, you're going to be fired. And so I said, that might be a blessing. And so I said, I'm not sending them. And another thing that you we were never supposed to do was to bring warring gangs together. But I did, and I I called all thirty, and they said, oh, you you won't be here long. And so I thought, I have to do what's right, because it was strange they called an old white woman out of retirement to come here. So anyway, I met with those gangsters, and um, they wouldn't talk to me at first, and they were mean-mugging each other and me, and I didn't know how to mean-mug back. But I got them (laughs) to talk enough that, one of them said uh, that 9-11 had never happened. They said they only trusted their gang members and their families. And they told me they didn't believe 9-11 had happened. And so I said, I know it happened. It did happen. And one kid said, Miss, if you believe that, you're dumber than we are. And so I thought, what on earth can I do? I said, what could I do to bring peace into your life and your lives and peace into the school. And um, so I thought, what if I took them to ground zero to see that it really did happen? And I finally asked, what if I took you there to prove to you? Because they didn't trust the government at all. And would you trust the government more and would the system more? Would you trust me more? And so there was dead silence, and they didn't say anything. And finally, one kid said, Miss, would you drive us? And I said, no, I can't drive you. I'm an old woman, and you're a bunch of thugs. And for some reason, they loved me calling them thugs. And they just all burst out laughing and started talking. And uh, they were afraid to fly. So I thought, surely somebody will help me. Take these 32 gangsters to New York. And so I went to the district and asked if they could get some businesses to help me. And they said, what? I would keep that very quiet. People are going to think you're crazy. (laughs) You you can't take gangsters to New York. So I went to places myself, businesses. Nobody would help me. And I I decided to have a fundraiser in, in that community but you can't raise funds where nobody has any money. So I stuck. And so that was August that I had, they signed a contract. There'd be no more gang fights on campus that year. And so it's getting around like to April and I still don't have the money. So I thought, well, you know, I should you let them have a, a baby fight or something so I can save face? Because that was a lot of money. And besides, the teacher said I was re- rewarding the wrong behavior. And so they said I should be taking the National Honor Society. And we only had nine members in the National Honor Society. So I said, well, I'll take them with us. And I, I just didn't know what I was going to do for money. But I was working with Dr. Benakalik, Dr. Art Costa, and Marion Litwitz. And they heard what, he, what I was doing. And Marion Libwitz happened to be the mother of John Stewart of Comedy Central. I started getting money from everywhere. Uh-huh. I got money from as far away as Hawaii. And I had more than enough money. to take 32 gangsters, uh, chaperones, and I had to get on my own because teachers wouldn't go. And um, also the nine members of it. National Honor Society, and so I took those kids to New York, and had no problems with them. With uh, they were scared to death okay. for, for flying, and I even took them to the Broadway, Broadway play, Forty uh, Second Street, and it changed their lives completely. It opened their eyes to a new way of living because. Most of them have never been outside their community, except to go to Mexico occasionally. But anyway, uh, it changed changed everything at the school. And then I started hiring police officers who lived in the community and understood the kids. And they worked with me to to help the kids, rather than expelling them and sending them to prison. So we stopped expelling kids altogether and we didn't, I uh, kept them in school. We started a program called Restorative Discipline where we had a, a, a place called the Thinkery where people would, where the kids, if they were having trouble and the teachers, they'd go in and uh, they would restore the relationships. And we used the Habits of Mind from um, Mark Costa and Ben and then, if parents had fights, they would go in there and restore relationships. And we built a covenant with a community that we were going to show a mutual respect for everybody there. And we all fell in love; we had a love affair going because I learned to love themself. And uh, and obviously, there was. I learned when you show hey. respect, <laughs> you get it's respect. The unknown comic. So we and have that. We, we heard about now. And awesome. now, and now too. And even now.
6: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID 19, Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov.
5: More with the author of Whispers of Hope, Dr. Bertie Simmons, straight
1: ahead. We had a call to go in to meet in our cafeteria. And there was television in there, big television. And they started talking with, well, us. I looked up and it was Lauren Bell Jobs that was on that television. And I had my little team there with me. And she told us that we were getting the grand. None of us could believe it. I mean, that was a throwaway school that nobody cared about. One kid even said to me one day, guess why don't you drive all the way across the school to a throwaway school? And I said to him, because you're not throwaway kids." But we were doing so many different things. Thinking outside the box. uh, We started project and problem-based instruction. We changed the instructional program altogether, and we built it. A, it was a personalized program based on the needs of students, and we gave them choice and voice, and all that was in our plan that we submitted. When There were over about 700 schools that applied for the grant. Lauren uh, Powell Jobs chose 10, and we were one of the 10, the only one in the state of Texas. So that's how we got the money.
5: Well, let me let me ask you this because these days a lot of people think that uh, they may not use the phrase throw away schools, but there are some real problems with public schools in cities all over the country and especially under this pandemic um as as schools start reopening um, are is the pandemic forcing Teachers and administrators to, to rethink how they educate kids, and is is that possibly a good thing? Because they're starting to think outside the box.
1: Well, a lot of them are starting to. Uh, yes, I've, I I have a website that I I just put a blog up there. It was time, that it's time to rethink schools, and I have suggestions in there, and then I ask. Uh, teachers to send me other suggestions. And I got them from a far away Colorado. And I got one from Utah and New Mexico and different places. Because what is it is doing is forcing people to think in a different way. And what I suggested in our blog, it's com that this really could help us to get out of that the brick-and-mortar schools as we've known them, with straight rows of desks, and to think of education in a different way and approaching it in a different way. And it should be centered on the needs of students, not the needs of the adults in the program. But what I have found, and I had 58 years in public education, and what I found was that we spend too much time thinking about ourselves, and too little time thinking about the needs of students. And I think our teachers uh, have always been trained to be founts of knowledge. But I think if we present programs in a different way, which I outline in my blog, that we could begin to view all of this differently and give students choice and voice about how they do the work. Because our our schools have changed so little and the world has changed around us so rapidly that uh, we're going to have to do something to be sure and give a future to our students because the future is so different from what the past has been.
5: Well, Brody, it's, uh, we're just about out of time, but I... Uh... I, and we could talk for hours. Um, the book is called Whispers of Hope, The Story of My Life by Dr. Bertie Simmons. Bertie, thank you so much for uh, sharing a little bit with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me on your program I, I hope what I've said has been helpful to somebody. But I think it would be interesting to go to my blog, to to go to my uh, webpage and website, and it's BertieSimmons.com. Because all of that is in there, and, and everything also is in my book.
5: Well, Bertie, so, and you
1: can get that on Amazon. Thank you for having me, uh,
5: uh, and and thank you again. And with that, there'll be more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
2: Old fashioned Yo!
5: that wraps it up for today's edition of the uh, Tom Sumner program. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with, um, well, we had uh, this hour, we talked with um, uh, Bertie Simmons. What a fascinating uh, conversation with her. And we started the hour out with uh, award-winning author Wayne Johnston. Uh, Early in the show, we had to do a uh, a substitution, if you will. We had to have... uh, amy title talking about um, covid tips from astronauts <laughs> kind of um that was a substitution for uh an interview i was really hoping uh, hoping we'd have a chance to do and maybe we'll get it rescheduled I was expecting uh, to hear from Mark Rank, one of the authors of a book called "Poorly Understood: What America's What Americans Get Wrong About Poverty." I thought that would be a very interesting conversation. And we had a good conversation with uh, Brian Carberry early, uh, early on in the first hour, talking about. Uh, he's from uh, Rent.com. He runs the the um, publishing on that site, and they do a lot of blogs and studies. And they were looking at uh, the qualities that make towns good for, well, Zooming, basically, good internet access for Zoom meetings and gatherings and so on, um, <laughs> called Great Zoom Towns. And it's uh, available on their website. Anyway, that's Smoking George Winters Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But uh, I'll be back tomorrow at 9 a.m. for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Hope you'll uh, join me then. In the meantime, good night, everybody.
0: The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions.